following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, may grace and peace be multiplied to you all in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures this morning and turn with me to the gospel according to Matthew and chapter 13. The gospel according to Matthew and chapter 13. I'd like to begin our time together by simply reading the chapter. As always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, hope-stimulating words of the true and living God. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. Sorry, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes... They have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown 
on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds and first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like grain, a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to them in the crowds, he said to them in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the, seed, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. 
The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Grace community, these are the words of the living God. Thanks be to God. The Apostle Matthew, in his gospel, brings his readers face to face with the king and his kingdom. In chapter 1, Matthew establishes the identity of this king and announces the arrival of this king. In chapter 2, we see this king in his childhood adored by men who traveled from the east, Gentiles. We see in chapter 2 this king preserved by the providence of God from Herod's attempt to kill him. In chapter 3, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for this king and eventually baptizing this king. In chapter 4, our king goes head-to-head with Satan in the wilderness to be tempted by him for 40 days and 40 nights. And as expected, he returns triumphantly from the wilderness the same way David returned after defeating Goliath. This is the son of David, the greater David. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, the king delivers his kingdom manifesto, that is, how life ought to be in his kingdom. And then we come to chapters 8 and 9, where Matthew deliberately calls our attention to the power, the authority, and the mercy of this king as he travels from city to village, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of affliction while simultaneously plundering Satan's dark kingdom by liberating individuals whose lives have been wrecked and ruined by demonic possession. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples look upon the crowds, and he had compassion on them, Matthew tells us, because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he began to teach them. But as he looked upon them, he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then interestingly, when we cross over into chapter 10, the king calls his 12 disciples and he gives them authority over Satan's kingdom to cast out demons and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of affliction. He calls and equips these men to go and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like the, the prayer of Matthew chapter 9 to send out laborers and harvest 
is answered in chapter 10 when they are sent out into that harvest. Meanwhile, John the Baptist finds himself in prison for his proclamation of the kingdom and the arrival of the king. Nevertheless, what we read in these chapters is that the message is spreading. The kingdom is spreading. The kingdom is advancing. Even in the midst of unbelief and even in the midst of rejection in cities like Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And even though the tension and the intensity of the hatred of the religious leaders for Jesus is escalating, Jesus declares to them, as we saw last week in chapter 12, that in light of his arrival and his spirit-empowered exorcisms, the kingdom of heaven has now come upon them. It's no longer at hand. It is here. It's present. And at the end of all the confrontation and all the clashing in chapter 12, we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of Jesus show up. And they ask to speak to Jesus. And it's here that Jesus clarifies who is actually part of the kingdom and family of God. He replies to the man who told him that his mother and brothers had arrived, saying, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So here we see the kingdom defined regarding its citizens. This is the king's true family. These are the citizens of the kingdom, those who do the will of the Father. And all of this, all of this sets the stage for Matthew chapter 13, where we come to the third of the king's major teaching sections within the Gospel of Matthew. There are five altogether. And the main theme of chapter 13 is the kingdom of heaven. Although Matthew 13, as you just witnessed, is one of the longest chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, you should not be intimidated by its length. You are to be encouraged by its message. And although we have 58 verses in front of us, I want to call your attention to four realities relating to the kingdom that Jesus lays out in this chapter. Number one, I want you to see the message of the kingdom. That's the parable of the sower. Number two, the apparently mixed nature of the kingdom. That's the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. Thirdly, we're going to see the inevitable spread of the kingdom. That's the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And then fourthly, we're going to see the unfathomable worth of the kingdom. That's the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. And after touching on these four realities relating to the kingdom, which emerge from the seven parables in this chapter, the chapter then concludes with two real-life examples of the parable of the sower. They can be seen in, number one, the disciples and their response to the king, verses 51 and 52. And number two, the people of Nazareth and their rejection of the king in verses 53 through the end. And so I want to call your attention to this first main point in verses 1 to 23. And it is this. Not all will receive the message of the kingdom. Not all will receive the message of the kingdom. Notice how he sets the stage. Matthew. 
Jesus goes on on that same day. When all this confrontation and clashing is taking place with the Pharisees, they're accusing him of doing all this by the power of Satan. On that same day, Jesus goes out of the house and he sits beside the sea. And we see great crowds gather about him. And so what he does in order to amplify his voice and make the message effective to their hearing, he gets out on a boat and he goes out a ways and he sits down and the whole crowd stands on the beach to ensure that they could all hear the message. We come in chapter 13 to what Matthew calls parables and he called, he told them many things in parables. A parable is essentially a story. A comparison, a practical story often framed as a simile that illustrates spiritual truth. There are all kinds of parables we see in the Gospels. There's a parable of the lost son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. But Jesus was a master at taking everyday realities and illustrating them and relating them to him, his kingdom, his mission, his work. In this chapter, we have essentially seven parables that Jesus breaks down and unfolds for us. That's what a parable is. And this first parable illustrates the truth that not all will receive the message of the kingdom. You see, this first parable, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, depending on how you look at it, really is the foundation of all the parables because in one instance, if you don't understand this parable, you can't understand any of the rest because this parable communicates how to enter the kingdom, you see. This is the message of the kingdom that one must receive in order to inherit and enter the kingdom. You see, the kingdom entrance into the kingdom of heaven is dependent on how one receives the message of the kingdom. And Jesus throws out this farming story of this farmer who goes out and he's scattering his seed. He's not like the farmers today that are very particular, scattering their seed in, 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 in various rows. No, farmers back then, they had a sack and they were walking through their fields just throwing seed, throwing seed. And it was just common that some seed would, yeah, end up on the path, the beaten path. Some seed would end up in, a, in an area where there's not much depth of soil. There's hard rock underneath. Some seed would end up in a patch area where there's, there's thorns. And some seed would fall on good soil. So Jesus begins here by calling our attention to the sower, going out and sowing his seed. We find the first guy, right, the first heart. These seeds fall along the path, and the birds came, and they devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have a lot of soil, and so they immediately sprang up, yes, but they didn't have much depth of soil. And so when the sun rose, these plants were scorched. They didn't survive. They didn't have a chance. They had no root, and so they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns. And it's not the piercing power of these thorns that ended up proving fatal to these plants. It's the fact that these thorns were competing for all the water within the soil that eventually caused these seeds that the farmer sowed to starve out and die. Other seeds, of course, fell along good soil. They sprang up and they produced much, much fruit. Simple story, right? Very easy for us to understand. Well, in that moment, the disciples came to him, whether it was 
they drew near in the boat where he was. Possibly that's what's referred to here. And they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And in the original, there seems to be some kind of a, an accusative attitude here. As if, why are you doing this? Don't you want to be effective as you're communicating to the multitude? Just communicating to the masses? Don't you want to make it clear and abundantly precise and understandable? This is kind of a rebuke. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them something that should shock us even 2,000 years later. Because it highlights the sovereignty of God's grace and mercy. He says, to you, disciples, it has been given to know the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you've been granted the amazing privilege of actually knowing what this is all about. To you, it's been given. To you, it's been granted. The supernatural knowledge and insight into the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. Which tells us something already at the outset. That if you understand divine truth in any way, if you understand anything from scripture that leads you to glory in Christ and savor Christ, that knowledge is given to you. That knowledge is a supernatural knowledge that has been given to you, granted to you from God himself. He's opened your eyes to hear it, to see it. He's opened your ears to hear it. He's opened your heart to receive it. So really, already here, Jesus is exalting and elevating the sovereignty of God in all of this. He says, but to them, it has not been given. It has not been given. For to the one, verse 12, who has, namely you all, more will be given. This is a promise that those of you who receive the knowledge of the kingdom from my father, whose eyes are open to the truth, you're only going to learn more. More will be given. What a promise here. This is something you can bring before the Lord. If you're confused about something in scripture, you can say, Lord, you said in your word that if I understand these things, that more understanding will be given to me. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. And you will have an abundance. That is, you will have an abundance of knowledge, of wisdom, and truth from God's word. This is glorious. God doesn't just want you to know a little bit about himself. He wants you to know everything you can humanly, that you can know that is humanly possible to know in this world. That's what he wants you to know. You're to grow in your knowledge of him. And that's the good news. That's the good promise. To the one who has this knowledge, more will be given. And you will have an abundance, an overwhelming abundance of truth and understanding of God's truth and word. But notice the last half of verse 12, which is frightening. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Even what he has will be taken away. In other words, the little truth that the unbeliever has will eventually be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. They do not understand. And he points to the prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 6 that's fulfilled in this situation. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? Because this people's heart has grown dull. It wasn't an innocent 
thing on their part to not see these things. It wasn't that they were desiring to see these things and couldn't see. It wasn't that they were longing to understand these things and couldn't understand them. No, we're told in verse 15 that the people's heart has grown dull. With their eyes, they can barely hear, and their eyes, they have closed. Notice that it's not God closing their eyes. They've closed their eyes. They've shut their ears. They've stopped up the entrance into the heart. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Notice God's willingness to heal and restore and save. But their unwillingness to turn from their ways to be saved and to be healed and to be restored. And then he follows up again in verse 16. But blessed are your eyes. That means, oh, divinely touched are your eyes for they see. And church, if that's you this morning, if you have been, your eyes have been opened to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, I can say to you this morning on the authority of God's word, your eyes have been blessed by God. And that is cause for high praise to God. Blessed are your eyes for they see what God wants them to see. And blessed are your ears for they hear. And he really accentuates the privilege of this first generation of disciples in verses 17. Verse 17, he says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and many righteous people longed to see what you see, and they did not see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. The Messiah didn't appear in their time. He has come in this time, in what Paul calls the fullness of time, the end of the ages, the perfect time. That's when he came. And oh, that privileged first generation of disciples, they got to see and hear, and John says, even touch the one that many of these righteous people and prophets through the ages have longed to see and hear and touch. Well, now he explains the parable, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. Now, there's going to be four hearts that he paints a picture of here. The first heart is the hardened heart. The hardened heart. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and then does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So you have a person here who is hard. And really, this is amazing because we all start out this way. We all start out hardened to the truth, soft to sin, soft to our pleasures, soft to the fleeting pleasures of sin, but hard toward the things of God. In this instance, we have a hard individual. And notice what hits the individual. It's the word of the kingdom. That is very important because we, as we're going to see at the end of Matthew's gospel, are going to be commanded through the disciples and their commission to go into all this world and to proclaim the gospel. And this gospel has to do with the kingdom. You see, Whenever they hear the word of the kingdom, I think we have a major, major problem here in, in the West because we have reduced the gospel down to simply how to be saved and how to go to heaven. That's not the gospel that was preached by the Lord Jesus. Yes, salvation is involved. Yes, the forgiveness of sins is involved. But it is a gospel, it is a good news announcement regarding the kingdom of God which should be a challenge to you. When you share the gospel with people, how kingdom-centric is it? 
Is it dripping with the good news of the kingdom of God? It's arrival in Christ. It's spread through the, through, the, through the eras, through church history, and it's coming consummation when we will see the culmination of all of God's promises in a new heaven and a new earth. You see, what they were proclaiming, in fact, this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, appears three times in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew really is about the king and his kingdom. So make sure that when you share the gospel, you sprinkle that presentation with the good newsness of the kingdom of God. It's arrival, it's inevitable expansion, and it's coming consummation. It's a kingdom, yes, that extends forgiveness. Yes, it extends justification and adoption into God's family, but it is a good news message about the arrival, expansion, and consummation of the kingdom of God. That's what the message is. But when this person hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, notice how quick the evil one, the birds, the birds come down and snatch away that seed that was sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. This is the hard heart. This is the individual who hears the message of the kingdom and immediately goes in one ear and out the other. That's really what this is saying. Nevertheless, the seed has been scattered. Verse 20, the shallow heart. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And at this point, we might be tempted to say, let's bring him in and baptize him. He receives the word with joy. Let's bring him in amongst the ranks. Let's declare him to be part of the family of God. But notice what happens here. Yet, verse 21, he has no root in himself. The problem is not with the seed. The problem is with the self. There's no root in himself. It doesn't go. It, it, just, it just hits the surface. Because there's still a hard heart there that won't allow the gospel's penetration into the heart. And so it endures for a little while. It springs up. It looks like a real plant. It looks like it's about to grow more and bear fruit. And so it really does look like a genuine conversion, a genuine Christian. But notice what happens. But when a tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, in other words, when it comes time to really believe what you believe and claim to believe what you believe, notice what happens. It immediately he falls away. So there's two immediacies here. They're quick to receive it, and they're quick to walk away from it. These are fair-weather Christians, as some people call them. Following Christ when it's easy. But yet, there's no root in themselves. There's no real penetration into the heart and into the affections and into the mind and the conscience. No, it, 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 it's, it's a surface-level Christianity that just rests right here. That's the shallow heart. Then we come to the distracted heart. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word. In other words, this person is so caught up in the things that Jesus says to leave to God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. They were caught up in the these things, not the divine things. 
And so this is a distracted heart. Christianity sounds good, but really when it comes down to it, there's all these other things to really enjoy and make much of in this world. This is the distracted heart. And they're choking the word. They have, the, the, the heart has no room for truly following Christ because the heart is just infatuated with all the sparkling, dazzling things that this world has to offer. And so what happens is that the word ends up choked. Nothing turns out to be fruitful in the end. It proves unfruitful. And now we come to the prepared heart, the receptive heart, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and, notice, understands it. Now, I go back to the very beginning. Why do they understand it? Because to them it's been given. Because blessed are their eyes. Blessed are their eyes. God has given them eyes to see and hearts to receive the message of the kingdom. Remember, John chapter 3, no one can see or even enter the kingdom of God unless he's been born again. You see, I want to make something very clear here. There are no good people with good hearts that are ready to receive the gospel in this world. Not one. If there is a prepared heart, it is a heart prepared by God. If there is a fertile soil ready to just receive the word, that has already been cultivated by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. Blessed is that heart, for it receives. Blessed are those eyes, for they see. And blessed are those ears, by God, for they hear. And he, he, he understands it, and he, he bears fruit, and he yields. In other words, the, the gospel sinks down. The message of the kingdom goes deep. And the, the person begins to bear fruit in his thoughts, in his words, in his actions. The fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. Love and joy and peace and patience. The fruit of the Spirit. And it's much, much fruit. A hundredfold, sixty and thirty. And so what we see in these verse, first 23 verses is that the message of the kingdom will not be received by all. It will be received by those whose hearts God prepares in his sovereign grace. And I ask you this morning, where are you in all of this? Have you joyfully received the message of the kingdom and are you bearing fruit? I'm not here to beat you over the head and say, you need to bear fruit. I'm here to tell you, just treasure this message of free grace and a, a free kingdom a kingdom of light and forgiveness and justification and adoption, a kingdom wherein Christ comes to rule you by his word and grace. And you will bear fruit. As you look to Christ, as you abide in him, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. And so we see that not all will receive the message of the kingdom. As we move in next... We see that not all who appear to be part of the kingdom are actually part of the kingdom. Look at the next parable, the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. This was pretty common back in that day. If there was a, a vengeful farmer who wanted to ruin the crop, the harvest of another farmer, he would have someone or himself go and scatter weeds in that field 
to ruin that guy's harvest. And what's interesting here is that the word that he uses for weeds is a word in the Greek that resembles, it referred to a weed that was, would resemble wheat. It would sprout out, it would look like wheat, it, it would appear to be wheat, but in the end you could tell it was not wheat, it was called the Darnell weed. And so the, the point of the passage is not, like many wise, smarter than me, commentators would say that you know, the, the, mes- the message here is that there's going to be people who look like Christians, act like Christians, but are not going to be distinguishable from Christians. No, it's very clear that the, the, the laborers go out and they notice right away, these are not what you planted. These are weeds. This is not wheat. And so they want to know if they have to go out and pluck up all these weeds. And the wise farmer who knows what he's doing says, no, what we're going to do is we're going to wait And at the end of the harvest, we're going to sort it all out. Well, then we come to verse 50. Sorry, verse 30. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Let them grow together. I want you to skip down to verse 36, where we're going to look at the interpretation of this parable. Then he left the crowds, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered them, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, the Son of Man keeps taking us back to what chapter? In Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel in the night vision sees this ancient of days. He sees God upon his throne, but he also sees the son of man, one like a son of man, also on a throne, also fit to to, to judge the nations and to be worshipped by the nations. He sees Jesus. And Jesus is saying throughout this entire gospel, I am that son of man equal with my father who will determine the destiny of the human race. He is the son of man. So, the, the farmer is the son of man. He's the one who sows the good seed. The field is the world. He's sowing his good seed throughout the world, throughout the Great Commission. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Believers, Christians. So the seed in the first parable is the message of the kingdom. The seed in this parable are the people of the kingdom. Remember that. These are the people of the kingdom. And he's sowing them all around the world. He is the one who plants believers in New Mexico and throughout all over the place through his regenerating grace and redeeming work. He's planting them all over the world. Well, he says at the end of verse 38 that the weeds are the sons of the evil one. He's the one who sows them. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. You see, the devil loves to counterfeit and mimic the things of God. Where God raises up a people, Satan has a people there. Where God sends forth angels of light to bring forth the message and ministry of of himself to his people, well, God has messengers too. Angels of light who disguise themselves as angels of light. But they are demonic. And so Satan's always trying to create counterfeits to whatever God is doing. So God creates a people, scatters a people throughout the world. Satan also has a people there to distract them and to try to mix in with them. These are the people that John's concerned about in his epistle. 
They appear to endure for a little while with the church. They were of us for some time, John says, but they went out from us. That they all might appear that they're not of us. That it might be complained that they're not of us. And so Satan plants his people in and amongst the people of God. It's frightening to know that there may be weeds here. They, they, they act like the wheat. They might look like the wheat, but the Son of Man knows they are not wheat. There's no real depth of penetration of the gospel into their heart and life. Because like the parable of the sower, they are so infatuated and consumed with the cares and the rotten riches of this world. Nevertheless, they look like believers. And it might be, we might be tempted sometimes to want to say, Lord, just remove them from our midst. And the Lord has purpose to let them grow along with the wheat until the end of the age. That's the day of separation. That's why Paul the Apostle, one of the reasons he says, hey, don't, don't pronounce judgment before, before the end. Don't, don't pass hard judgment towards the end. Because someone could truly be a Christian and just going through a really difficult time. And we might be quick to be like, nah, that's an unbeliever right there. Don't be too hasty with that. God has determined to let both grow until the end of the age. And that's when it will be sorted out. Notice the middle of verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will, as it were, dispatch his divine policemen, his, 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 heaven, his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. That's why I titled this second point that not all who appear to be part of the kingdom are actually in the kingdom. You see, Jesus, I believe here, is talking about the visible aspect of the kingdom, that which you can see, because you know and you recognize that there's a visible kingdom and there's an invisible kingdom. Theologians call it the visible church and the invisible church. In other words, the visible church is the church that you can see with your eyes. Those who profess to be Christians, the invisible church are those who actually possess eternal life. They don't just profess faith like the visible church. They possess faith as the invisible church. Those whom God truly knows are his children. He's referring to the visible kingdom here. One day, the visible kingdom will be gathered about him. And he will separate the righteous and the wicked. And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace. This is not just a, 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 like we would call like a fire pit. This was known for having a blazing fire burning out of it. Very similar to the fiery furnace into which Daniel and his friends were thrown. It was so hot that, as we see in that story, even the men who threw them in there were burned and were killed. This is something blazing. He's referring to the punishment of hell. In that place, he says in verse 42, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This calls our attention, friends, to the, severe, the severity of hell. The severity of hell. Jesus Christ spoke about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament, which tells us that the most loving person to ever walk this earth and breathe our air is the one person who spoke and warned men about this horrific place. It's a place marked in this instance by weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
By the way, this weeping in the Greek is not a mere tearing of the eyes, a watering of the eyes. Matthew uses the same word back in chapter 2 to talk about the weeping mothers who had their children slaughtered by Herod. You tell me a mother in that day would just shed a little tear? No. John, or Matthew says that this loud lamentation could be heard in this city. Wailing, weeping, loud, screaming. This is the place of hell, friends. Unutterable screams, cries, agony, wailings. I mean, the sounds alone of hell are haunting and they should haunt us. He says this is a place of not only weeping and wailing and screaming. It is a place of gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth is just the intense sorrow and agony and the pain that accompanies this where body and soul are tormented for their love of sin and their rejection of grace. But notice verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The righteous, those who are sons and daughters of the kingdom, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is that great day that Paul talks about, the redemption of our bodies. When we are glorified with Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, when our perishable bodies put on the imperishable when what is corruptible rises up in that resurrection as incorruptible this is that day when we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father skip down if you will to the parable of the net because this illustrates the same truth that not all who appear to be part of the kingdom are actually part of the kingdom verse 47 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. This was common, as, as, as those in that day would know. There'd be typically two boats, and they'd stretch out this massive net. They'd drop it to the, ocean, the, 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 the floor of the sea with weights. The tops would be suspended with like, like floating devices, cork or some kind of wood. And, and, and they, this, these two boats would drag this net, it's called a drag net, through the sea silently just collecting all manner of fish, dead fish, living fish, clean fish, unclean fish, whatever. And at the end, it took a handful of men to bring this net up, and then they'd have to sort it all out. And that's what this is about. It's like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down, and they had to do the work of sorting the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. Well, Jesus brings an immediate interpretation, verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Notice who's, who's experiencing the, the snatching away. The righteous are abiding. The righteous are staying. The righteous will inherit the earth. The righteous will inherit the kingdom. It's the wicked, the evil that the angels are snatching out, snatching out, tearing them away from the good company of God's people. They are the ones being taken away. Separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping again and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is showing in these two parables, most theologians couple these parables together, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net to show that not everyone who appears to be part of the kingdom is actually part of the kingdom. The great separation, the great day of revelation to see who's really in and who's really out is not today. We do the work of sowing. Pastors do the work of preaching. Christians do the work of ministry and sharing and cultivating and, and, and praying. But the harvest is at the end of the age. 
that's my hope as a pastor is, yeah, I would love to see genuine conversions here. I think we long for that. We pray for that. But ultimately, I have to understand that as I go about my weekly laboring, that the harvest will be at the end of the age. That's when all will be made known. Those who are truly Christians will be revealed. And those who were just faking it, they will stand there and they will be separated from God's people. And they will be thrown. This is not a gentle laying of laying some, someone somewhere. This is a throwing into a fiery furnace, the lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we've seen that not all will receive the message of the kingdom, the parable of the sower. Not all who appear to be part of the kingdom are actually part of the kingdom, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. But we see thirdly, not all the powers of earth and hell can stop the spread of the kingdom. By the way, my four points begin with the word not. Not all will receive the message of the kingdom. Not all, will, not all who appear to be part of the kingdom are actually part of the kingdom. And not all the powers of earth and hell can stop the spread of the kingdom. And that brings us to the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Fix your eyes on verse 31. He put another parable before them. Before his disciples. Remember, he is, he's not amongst the crowds at this point. He is withdrawn. He's with them. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. In that day, farming, gardening was not just a, a nice to have like it is for many people today. It was a way of life. It, it was not just a hobby. It was something you did. Every, every, most families had some kind of a little garden. And so that's the context of this parable. A man has a grain of mustard seed, and he takes it and he sows it in his field. And Jesus calls attention to the size of this seed. In another, in another instance, you remember Jesus said that if, even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can do great things for the Lord. The Lord can do great things through you. So these seeds, and a lot of critics will come and attack Jesus here and say, well, Jesus wasn't entirely correct because it, technically it's not the smallest of the seeds. Jesus isn't concerned with precision here. He's trying to make a point. This is a tiny seed, a seed that could often be missed even by the birds in the field. Birds would prefer like a sunflower seed or something else, right? This is, a, this is small, it's very small. He, and he, 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 he plants it. And verse 32 says, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, not all the powers of earth and hell can stop the spread and growth of this kingdom. It is destined to grow and it is destined to be the one kingdom standing at the end. Another uh, criticism that people like to throw at this parable is that technically the mustard seed doesn't grow into a tree as we would call it. But Jesus now is intentionally mixing stories and mixing imagery in order to call our attention to two realities that are really rooted in the Old Testament. By the way, I realized I only had an hour here. So much of the commentaries for this chapter drive us into the Old Testament. Jesus is pointing here to something we find in Ezekiel chapter 17. Turn there with me. Turn to Ezekiel 17. 
Look at verses 22 and following. You see, the Old Testament anticipated that one day God would establish a kingdom that would provide rest and shelter and shade for all the peoples of the earth. And that's what we see here in Ezekiel 17, verse 22 and following. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under, every, and under it will dwell every kind of bird. In its shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Jesus is drawing from this Old Testament expectation that one day the kingdom of God will grow up to be this tree that provides shade and rest for all the birds of the heavens. A reference to the Gentiles. You remember in that vision that Peter had in Acts chapter 10, what was one of the animals that was lowered in that sheet that Peter saw in that trance? Birds. Jesus goes, Peter goes on to talk about how this is how God showed him that he was now to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That which was considered unclean in the Old Testament are now considered the ones that God wants to reach in the New Testament. And so this kingdom begins small. The point of this parable, back to Matthew 13, is that its beginnings are so small. I mean, literally, literally, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king who brought the kingdom, started out so small in the womb of Mary, in a poor home, to a carpenter. When he assembled his disciples, these men were not the elite of the land. These were 12 Men, many of whom were fishermen. We read the, 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 the intended taunt in the book of Acts that the religious leaders are saying, hey, saying regarding the apostles. These are uneducated, untaught men. That's how the kingdom began. And as you read the book of Acts, as the kingdom is spreading, it's advancing. The mustard tree is growing, and they're bringing in Gentiles, birds, to dwell in its branches, just like Ezekiel foretold. He gives another parable here to draw our attention to the unstoppable spread of the kingdom. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, a le is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. This is a lot of flour, by the way. This is a lot of flour. Charles Corll says, leaven is not the modern baker's yeast. The fungus that is used to make dough rise today. It was a small lump of sourdough, a fermented mixture of flour and water. When the small lump of sourdough, usually a pinch of dough left over from the previous day's bread making, was kneaded into a fresh batch of dough, the microorganisms from the starter permeated the larger batch. The resulting fermentation released carbon dioxide gas that causes the batch to rise. The leavening process makes the baked bread lighter and improves its flavor. So the, the baker knew, the mother knew 
All she needed was a little bit of leaven. And eventually, as Paul says, with regards to sin, leaven can leaven the entire lump. It will spread. It will spread. Well, Jesus says here that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It starts out very small. Three measures of flour, by the way. This would have been 30 quarts equal over four bushels or four cubic feet. Quarles writes, this would make far more bread than what was needed by a single family in a day. The amount of bread is estimated to have been enough to feed 150 people, which would amount to the population of a small village. The vast quantity of dough affected by the small pinch of leaven is necessary to Jesus's point here. All he needed was a little bit and it would spread. And we see the unstoppable nature of this kingdom in the book of Acts, don't we? When wise Gamaliel chimes in as the, the apostles are being questioned regarding their preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And Gamaliel says, in a sense, you guys need to back off from these guys because if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it. Well, good news, it is of God and no one will be able to stop it. It is like leaven that will spread. It is like leaven that will pervade and permeate the entire lump of dough. And friends, we know from the scriptures that the kingdom of heaven began small in the Lord Jesus, in the promises scattered throughout the Old Testament, culminating in the, the arrival of the king in the womb of the virgin, eventually spreading through his preaching, the calling of his disciples, the growth of the kingdom. Well, what's, what, what's, what's, what's the end? What's, what's, the, what's the end goal here? Well, here too, we are driven back to Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he's disturbed by it. He sees this huge image. Eventually, we come to know that this image represents his kingdom and all the uh, many world power kingdoms after him. And he sees this rock, not cut out by human hands, falling from heaven, and it shatters to pieces this great monument of the kingdoms of man. And as Daniel comes and by the grace of God is able to relay and relate the message to Nebuchadnezzar, he says this little rock is the kingdom of God that eventually becomes a mountain that covers the entire earth. Because that's what will happen at the end of the age. We are told in Revelation chapter 11 at that seventh and last trumpet, which brings us to, in the language of John and the angels in heaven, God's outpouring of wrath and judgment on the last day. The announcement in that day, according to Revelation chapter 11. Turn there. Just bear with me. The confession of that day will be the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, this mustard tree will grow until it takes over. This leaven will spread until it is the one thing left standing. And all the kingdoms of this world are banished, judged into hell. And the one thing standing, the one thing left will be the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And so these two parables teach us of the inevitable spread of the kingdom. Not all the powers of earth and hell can stop the spread of this kingdom. And that's encouraging to us. Well, we come to the last point, and that is this. Not all the riches of this world can compare to the infinite worth of this kingdom. And that brings us to the parable of 
the hidden treasure. By the way, Matthew calls our attention to Psalm 72, where Asaph is said to relay his teachings in parables. You see that in Matthew 13, verse 34 and following. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Asaph. I will open my mouth in parables and utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. What's interesting about Psalm 72 is it eventually goes on to celebrate the kingdom of David. And as we have been seeing again and again in Matthew, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David. And so Jesus spoke in parables. Why? We saw earlier to conceal these things to the hard-hearted who want nothing to do with it and to expound them and explain them to those whose hearts had been cultivated by the sovereign grace of God to further understand the glorious kingdom of God. What we see here that not all the riches of this world can compare to the infinite worth of the kingdom. Look at the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. You see, in that day, they didn't have banks like we have today. And so in, in, in a culture where there is constant, you know, raiders and thieves, and sadly in the history of Israel, exiles, we have a greater nation coming in to judge by the hand of God the nation of Israel, whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or eventually now the Romans. And so you'd bury your treasure in a field, by the way, this same treasure chest is mentioned back in chapter 2 where we see these wise men from the east bringing their treasures out of this saying for the child Jesus. And so you'd hide your treasure in a field. Well, if the owner died and went on past this life, the treasure was just left in the field. And so it was common to be stumbling across a field and whether it was a day laborer or a farmer who was, who was working that field to find these things. And in this instance... You have this guy out in this field, and he finds this treasure. Well, he then buries it back up. He covers it up again, lest it be discovered by anyone else. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this treasure. It's hidden in this field, and when this guy finds it, he covers it up, and then he goes. He had to travel home. He had to look at all of his possessions. This is significant here. He had to look at everything he had in his house. Grandma Bertha's grandfather clock. This china from, no. I mean, he, he, had to, he had to come to grips with what he had to get rid of. But notice that there's no question about, there's no questioning here. He says, I'm going to sell it all because he knows that that treasure is worth more, infinitely more than everything he has in his possession right now. All of his net worth pales in comparison to, to the worth and value of this kingdom. Oh, it's a kingdom of glory. It's a kingdom of endless light and life. It is a kingdom where the riches of redemption and salvation pour down upon its citizens in celebration of God's glorious grace throughout all eternity. It is an infinitely rich kingdom because it's rooted in the one that Paul says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And knowledge, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he is what gives the value to this kingdom. He is the reason this kingdom is dripping with infinite worth and wealth. 
The second parable that illustrates the fact that not all the riches of this world can compare to the worth of the kingdom is the parable of the great pearl of the pearl of great value. Again, the kingdom, verse 45, of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had, and he bought it. By the way, the man previously, in joy, he sold all that he had. This was not, uh, I don't really want to part with this. No, this was, <laughs> take it all, because I know what I'm about to lay my hands on. I know what I'm about to lay hold of. He does it in joy, and that's insinuated here as well. In the first parable, the guy stumbles across it. In this parable, the guy knows what he's looking for. And that illustrates many people, that, that, that shows how many people are. Sometimes we meet Christ, we don't know what we're looking for. We're just walking through the field of life. We're just walking through this world, as John Bunyan says in the Pilgrim's Progress, as I was walking through the wilderness of this world. You know, we're, we're just walking through this life. And then we stumble across the Lord Jesus Christ by means of a tract or someone telling us about Christ or opening up a Bible, whatever it is. And then we realize this is worth losing everything for. I'm following hard after him. If I have to lose everything, that's okay. Because to die is gain. Same here. This guy knows what he's looking for, though. He's a merchant. Typically merchants in Israel, they had to travel as far as India to find different pearls. We read of some of the pearls that Cleopatra had. I mean, massive pearls, of great value. This man knows what he's looking for. He sees one. That's the key in this. One pearl of great value, worth more than all this man possessed. You see, Jesus is this one pearl of great value, of infinite value, that it's worth losing everything for. You see, friends, in this last parable here, he illustrates the fact that there are people who know what they're looking for. And I would argue that we are born into this world with a value system that is just twisted and distorted. We value things and we say, oh, that is very, very valuable. God says it's garbage. That is very, very valuable. Look at all this gold. God says, no, that's the asphalt in my heaven. We have a twisted value system. Oh, but when God opens the eyes of people in regeneration, there's one thing that can satisfy and one thing alone. I must lay hold of Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the one pearl of great value that I would be glad to part everything for, with everything for. Well, now, as we come to the conclusion here, Matthew ends with two real-life examples of the parable of the sower. Look at verse 51. Matthew 13, 51. After all of this, he says in verse 51 to his disciples, have you understood all these things? And this brings us back to the parable of the sower. When the word of the kingdom goes out, it's the person, the last heart, the receptive heart, who first understands it. That's where he's getting at. This is like the bookend of Matthew chapter 13. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Why? It's been given to them to understand these things. Blessed are their eyes, for they see and perceive and hear and understand. And so he responds in verse 52, Therefore, every scribe 
who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He basically turns to his disciples and says, now you are my scribes. What would these men go out and do? Turn the world upside down and give us the rest of the New Testament as scribes, authors, writers. He says, in a sense, if you understand these things, oh, you are trained scribes for my kingdom. And what you're going to do in your writings is you're going to bring out treasures new that you've learned through me and old that I've taught you how to see with regard to the Old Testament. And what the apostles went forth and did in the book of Acts and in their epistles is they bring out treasures from the Old Testament and how they relate to Christ. They point to these new treasures in the New Testament and say, look at the dazzling beauty of Christ. He says, that's what you're going to go forth and do as trained scribes in my kingdom. And friends, I want you to know that if you understand these things and you treasure and you love these things, you are a scribe. You are a messenger of divine truth to take to the nations treasures of truth, both from the Old and New Testament, pointing people to the sum and substance of the Old and New Testament, Jesus the Messiah. Take these treasures to the nations. And so that's what Jesus says here. In this real-life example of the parable of the sower, this, these disciples hear all this. They understand it. They hold fast to it. And they're going to go and bear fruit as a result of it, like the last heart in the parable of the sower. Well, then we come to the end, verses 53 through 58. We see the disciples and their response to the king, but we now see the people of Nazareth and their rejection of the king. The disciples understand and will go and bear fruit. The Nazarene people don't believe, and unless they repent, they will enter eternal, unquenchable fire. He says here in verse 53, And when Jesus had finished his parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished. So just like Matthew chapter 12 ends with honing in on Jesus's family, now chapter 13 ends with honing in on Jesus's hometown. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom? And, and here we, we, we almost attribute these people to the second individual in the parable of the sower, they receive it with joy. They're astonished at his teaching. And they're asking, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? In other words, where did he get these words and how is he doing these works? The focus is on his words and his works. And they're fascinated. But then you see the downhill descent of unbelief beginning in verse 55. Notice this. Is not this the carpenter's son? And you can hear the sneering behind it all. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all these things? This isn't curiosity. This is unbelief and mockery. Because look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. They stumbled over him is what Matthew's saying. They stumbled over him. And so they proved to be that first hardened heart in the parable of the sower. They hear it. They don't understand it. They're astonished, but they say, nah, this is not of God. We know where this man came from. We know that he couldn't have had these things 
in himself. There's no way. There's no way. And they take offense at him. And Jesus concludes by saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Friends, not all will receive the message of the kingdom. Not all who appear to be part of the kingdom are actually part of the kingdom. Not all the riches of this world can compare to the infinite worth of the kingdom. And not all the powers of earth and hell can stop the spread of this kingdom. So what are you to do? Hold fast the word you've been given. Go forth as divinely commissioned sowers to bring forth treasures to those who desperately need them in a dying and dark world. Those who are impoverished by sin, be the treasure bringer of God's truth taken from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and watch the kingdom spread before you. Friends, you are in a unique position. You have the Old Testament. You have the New Testament. You have, the, you have an audience. If you have children, you have an audience. You have, you, have, you have children to bring these treasures to. Show them that it's all about Christ. Show them that this kingdom will not, will not be stopped. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That small mustard seed has small beginnings, but oh, it will be the one kingdom standing in the end. And it's worth losing everything for. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you are without Christ, I just urge you to, to look to him, to believe upon him, he is the one pearl of infinite value that outweighs all the riches of this universe. Doesn't even, pay, doesn't even compare. He is the one treasure that's worth losing everything for. Enjoy losing everything for.